This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot known locally as the February Room is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. Back in 2013, I made my way to the Ozarks to produce an episode of Dead Meat, where we snagged for paddlefish and ate them. It was during this experience I learned that you can't wrap everything in bacon and call yourself a chef. My next guest curates incredible plates to a whole nother level. Welcome to the podcast, Flavor on the Fly editor for Fly Lords, Kirk Marks. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kirk. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Lauren. And all the way from Kent Island, is it Kent Island, Maryland? Yep, yep, that's it. Little uh, little island within the Chesapeake Bay. I mean, I can just even see it right now. It just sounds like a, a beautiful novel set in the middle of nowhere. You got some beautiful oceans, you got rivers. I can't wait to even explore a little bit more about your home waters. But before we go into that, I'd love to hear a fishing story. Okay, yeah, sure thing. Um, 
I was thinking about a fishing story to share because I, um, you know, knew that's uh, something you guys are into. Um, <laughs> totally, as, <enjoy>. as most <laughs> most fishermen and fisher women are. But uh, yeah, so I wanted to talk about like my first red drum that I ever caught on the fly. Uh, awesome. Pretty... We haven't had a red drum story yet, so this is great. Oh, awesome! Yeah, so it's a pretty cool story because I actually, when I graduated college. Um, I went to Charleston, South Carolina with my family and my girlfriend and kind of made it a little side mission to uh, try to catch a red drum down there. So we went to the fly shop, bought some flies, got some local intel, and just made a waiting mission out of it, um, but didn't, didn't strike up any red drum. So then fast forward about a year, I go down to Florida with one of my buddies who moved down to New Samaritan Beach area originally from Can Island too. And we're out on his canoe and we're looking around, seeing plenty of drum, but the drum down there are actually pretty spooky and wary. Um, so I was just getting the fly like a little bit too close or a little bit too far. And it, just a lot of things kind of happened where it just wasn't, they weren't gonna connect with the fly. Um, so after probably I don't know, 20 attempts or so, it just ended up not happening that trip. Um, and then a kind of a little bit of a side note on that trip. I, I'm also into photography and uh, we were fishing these impoundments for red drum and we're driving up this road and my buddy's like, okay, we're gonna launch the canoe right here in this impoundment. Um, so we get, we unload everything, get the canoe in the water. I've got my camera bag, my tackle, my rods. And uh, we get like 20 yards from where we launched. And my buddy's like, oh shit, this is the wrong impoundment. I'm like, oh, no worries, man. We'll pack everything back up. So <laughs> we pack everything back up and uh, head to the next impoundment, which is literally like not even a mile down the road. So we're unloading the uh, all the gear again. And I'm like, oh crap. I forgot my camera bag at the last impoundment. So we turn around and we go back there and I forgot a paddle and my camera bag because we're just doing this quick load up. We hit the wrong spot, you know, just a quick thing, put everything back in, go to the next one. So I wasn't really thinking and I forgot my dry bag, which had my camera, my lens that was on my camera and then another spare lens in there and my wallet. So it's all in this one dry bag. Um, and then my there, a paddle for the canoe is also there. We turn back around, go to grab, go to where we were. And the paddle's still there, but my bag is gone. And I'm like, oh, damn. So we go to, there's like a ranger station, um, not too far away. We go there, check in, nothing. No one reported anything. We kind of make our laps around the place for a little bit longer, asked a few people if they heard anything, saw anything, and no one had any intel. So I was being hopeful and I was like, you know, maybe someone will call, maybe something will happen, but it just never did. So then I, <laughs> I had uh, basically to go through security at the airport without my license. And then they ask you all these questions about your hometown and like, what's your mother's maiden name? and what's a notable landmark within five miles of your house and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so yeah, I got a little bit derailed there in Florida, but you know, long story short, 
lost the camera, lost the bag, lost my wallet, and didn't catch a red drum. Oh, so that was a bit of a. <laughs> that was my question. I was like, "Did you reset. at least catch a red drum? Do we have a story?" There is nothing worse. I I have to say, like losing your wallet, it can be just like I I I mean, I've been a little bit better about not keeping personal information in my wallet anymore because I think I've have this fear that someone's gonna steal it and have like my social security number and know everything. But I guess, anyways, it, it, there's nothing worse feeling when you lose your wallet, and then on top of it, a camera. I mean, those things are. So expensive. Yeah, and I had some really sweet shots from the trip that I was bummed about too. I was like, I, "What do you, you know, think it's happened a, to it? Do you just think it went in the water and it's just gone, or do you think someone like walked and picked it up?" No, yeah, it was. Um, I remember we. I left it sitting by the roadside um, where we were kind of staging all of our gear. Um, so yeah, someone definitely just snatched it. Um, so yeah, wasn't the best feeling, but. You know, it was replaceable at the end of it. So. Yeah, very true. But I have to say, I believe in karma. I bet you some bad things happened. Maybe when they opened up the camera, it just ended up, you know, exploding on them or something like that. I believe in <laughs> karma. It could not have ended well for them, okay? the So there's a there's one more piece layer to the Red Drum story. It has a happy oh, ending. yes. Okay, yes. Um, went to Charleston, no Red Drum. Went to New Samaritan Beach, Florida, no Red Drum. Came back home, and I'm down in my home waters on the Chesapeake Bay. Um, actually, the lower bay, so not I'm not up in around Ken Island, but you know, still the Chesapeake um, near the mouth. And I'm kayak fishing with my buddies, and uh, they're they're using spin gear. I'm using a fly rod, and we're on these clam. There's like. A, there's a couple channels, sandbars, and then some clam bags where they're doing like aquaculture facilities for clams. And out of nowhere, we just see a school of red drum, like anywhere from like 20 to 28 inches was kind of the size in the school. See them tailing, see them pushing wake. And uh, I keep like paddling up to them and they're a little bit out of range. My buddies on spin gear are all hooked up and I'm just trying to cast the fly from my kayak and they're like a little bit too far for me. So I'm kind of joking to my buddy and we see a, you know, a group of maybe like six of them kind of heading our way. I'm kind of joking to him and I'm like, you know, cast in there and pull the school my direction. So he casts in there, hooks up with one and they end up doing exactly what I was kind of joking about. He's reeling it in and they follow and they come within like 20 yards of my kayak, I cast in, hook up on the fly, and then we're doubled up, he's on spin gear, I'm on the fly, <laughs> and ended up catching my first red drum on fly right in my home waters of the Chesapeake Bay. So it was a roundabout way of doing it, but it came to uh, actually happen right here in the Chesapeake, so it was pretty special. Oh my gosh, How I've never caught red drum before, but are they pretty uh, tough fighting fish? They are. They're very, very hard fighters. Um, and I, I catch a lot of striped bass in the bay, um, which, you know, are hard fighters as well. Yeah. Striped bass are like pretty sporadic. Um, but red drum are just kind of like tanks. Like they don't do a whole lot of, you know, change in direction or real agile maneuvers, but they are just like bulldogs and will just keep going straight away from you until you pull them, turn them, get them in. 
Oh my gosh, I love it. But you know, Kirk, I was as I stated in the very beginning, because um, it's amazing the the dishes that you've come up with, and it's interesting because as um, someone who's watched other people cook, it's it, a lot of people think they can cook and they do wrap it up in bacon, and they're like, yeah, oh, I can make the best dish, and it's always wrapped in bacon. And there's so much more when it comes to complex animals fish whatever you need to balance those um those seasons and you have crafted some incredible plates can you tell me a little bit about um flavor on the fly i mean how did you let's hear about how did you cook one of these these little guys up yeah so uh red drum are a species that's doing pretty well in the chesapeake area um especially the lower bay so you're, you're allowed to keep them. And uh, I, I kept that fish and I'm, I'm real big on like field care and making sure you're doing everything you can in the field to make sure that when you get that fish back to the kitchen, it is in the best shape possible. So made sure to bleed that fish, um, just slice the gills with a knife or scissors or something um, and actually put that fish back into the water after you've sliced it because it's gonna bleed out um, the meat from the flesh, or the, the sorry, the blood from the flesh. And um, as that's happening, if you do it in open air, the blood will start to coagulate and kind of stop that process. So if, to keep it in the water allows the blood to just kind of pump out more. And that's, that's really doing two things. It's making the taste of the filet a little bit cleaner um, and if you were to freeze the fish, it's going to last a little bit longer because you don't have that blood in there, um, which would spoil a little bit quicker. But it's also just going to kill that fish quickly and be, you know, an ethical way to harvest that fish. So after I bled the fish, put it in a cooler with ice. Um, and if you can put some salt water in the cooler, that's even better to just to get every surface of that fish surrounded by something cold. Um, and if you put salt water like directly from the lower bay into your ice it actually will get even colder than um it would if it was just ice because you know salt kind of like how you put salts on the road for snow at least around here they do that um it yeah. lowers the freezing temp of water so you can have water that's below 32 degrees um, but still liquid uh, so it's super cold solution which is really good for keeping fish in and then after all that's done and it's back in the, um, you know, back in your kitchen, uh, we, we filleted the fish and just kind of fried it like you would a standard fish, the fillets themselves. But there's this really good cut on a red drum that's often overlooked, which is called like the throat or some people call it the collar. It's kind of, it's the area between where the pectoral fins are and the gill plates are, but on the underside of the fish. Huh. And there's a lot of good meat in there, um, and it actually has a different texture. It's a little bit more crab-like, um, and it's got a slightly different flavor, but still pretty, pretty fish. I mean, red drum has a fishy flavor, but it's good. I mean, you're eating fish. You should expect a little bit of that, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, you are eating fish. You should have a, it tastes like, it has a fishy taste to it. You're like, yeah, that is, right. it is a fish. Yeah. Like, so, yeah. So often people <laughs> think fishy and they're like, oh, that's like a negative connotation. I was like, you are eating fish, you know? So, 
<laughs> okay, so there's that like little crab meat, which is amazing because let's just be honest, the I, I, I don't know. I went to the grocery store the other day and I was looking at California, uh, was it King Crab? Guess how much it was a pound? $75 a pound. And you're like really? in Montana, wow. so you're really paying for it. But I mean, I can't imagine how, how is it that expensive uh, in Maryland? To get something like Alaskan crab or Dungeness or something, I'm sure it would be comparable, but we have a lot of blue crabs around yeah. here. Um, but they, I mean, they sell for what I think is ridiculous too, because I, you know, go crabbing, my dad and I go crabbing, um, so we can get a bushel in a few hours. But yeah, I mean, a bushel of crabs around here is, you know, upwards of $300. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. I Who can, you know, what I love about looking at flavor on the fly is that you're, what you talked about is sustainable is like looking at your waters and making some incredible dish that you can get at like a fine restaurant. And I think that's what's so appealing for people, um, especially who are wanting to be more sustainable. Like let's go out in the water and whether that's elk hunting, fishing, it's like, how do we... How can we process our own our own food, you know, without having to go to the market and spend $300 for something? Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the more people are involved with their food, the more they have awareness and care. Um, and the, the flavor on the fly dish I actually made with that drum was the, the collars. Um, and I made, you know, kind of a classic low country shrimp and grits recipe. But instead of shrimp... I used the red drum collars and I really wanted to utilize that cut to highlight that there's more than just the filet on this fish that you can use. A lot of people, you know, just throw that cut back. It's like, yeah, the filets are great, but there's all this other meat too. And you should probably utilize that if you're going to keep and kill a fish, you know, maximum utilization is always a good thing. Absolutely. It's funny that you say that because we, my husband will bonk pike on the head and eat them like make fish tacos. But on the other hand, we also go elk hunting. And, you know, every time I'm eating my elk, I will eat every single piece of that elk because I'm also very sensitive to the fact that there is an animal that we took their life and I want to make sure to honor it. And also it was so hard packing that elk out and so much hours put onto it. I'm like, I'm not going to throw any piece of this meat away. I'm going to digest it and my kids are going to eat it and everyone's going to eat this elk and we're all going to enjoy it. But it is so interesting that when you work so hard and especially even fly fishing, I mean, the amount of flies that you sometimes have to change and the amount of energy that goes into reading the waters, um, you know, it you, you want to invest into, um, I don't know, it just means a whole lot more when you're eating it you know? Yeah, I agree. Yep. hundred percent. That's awesome that you guys, uh, get the elk out there. Oh uh, man. That's on my bucket list for sure. Absolutely love it. Like we, this last, and we hunt hard. I mean, elk hunting, you know, I think we tracked in like for three days, like 26 miles of hard, hard hunting. And wow. the funny thing is where we shot the elk was, you know, uh, random. The, we saw some elk went hiking, like a mile and shot it you know so it's it's funny how it can sometimes turn out that way but it is one of those things that is um 
you get it, you know, every time I do it, I'm like, I'm not going to do this again. Like, this is so hard. My body hurts. It's so much work. It's hard country. And then as soon as we, you know, we have harvested an elk and we're back in the truck, uh, we're planning the next season. I'm like, I can't wait to get back out there. <laughs> it's it's a drug. It's that, yeah, it's <laughs> a, that second level of fun. Sometimes it's a grind when you're doing it, but you look back so finely on it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because the reason why sometimes I don't want to fillet fish is because of the fishy smell on my hands and also the bones. And I know there's so many techniques where people are like, hey, I've got it figured out like where I can fillet a fish and have the less amount of bones in your um, in your dish. Do you have a trick when it comes to filleting, filleting fish? Well, it's like every fish is different and a lot of fish have different uh you know, anatomy when it comes to their pin bones. Like you mentioned, you guys uh, eat pike, and I know yeah. they're very bony fish. Um, oh, I know. It's like every time we're eating, we're like, just chomp a little slower, kids. Right. Well, I did a, um, I did another flavor on the fly. I don't really have any great filleting tips just because they're, I mean, each fish is its own beast. Um, yeah. So you got to know where the pin bones are, if you can avoid them, um, if they're if it's a big fillet, uh, like needle nose pliers are great. You can just kind of pluck them out. Um, otherwise, you just kind of make a little thin slice around them sometimes. Um, but I did do a flavor on the fly piece that was about pickerel, and similar to pike, they have a ton of bones. And if you try to debone them at the end of it, you're pretty much left with not a lot of meat. So I, the recipe was pickled pickerel, which. Uh, has a good ring to it, but but it's also pretty tasty. And when you when you put a pickerel fillet, or you know chunked up pickerel fillet in an acidic pickling brine, the brine actually dissolves the pin bones. So after the brining process is complete, you're left with these chunks of pickerel that you can put you know with a slice of pickled jalapeno and pickled red onion and on a cracker, um, and it's completely boneless and it's uh, pretty tasty. Oh, interesting. You know, I was also looking at all the stuff that you have created, and I thought one of the other interesting ones, because we did an episode on Snakehead, and I was like, wow. Um, and, I, you know, it's I personally, the people that were trying to cook it had a little bit of difficult level trying to make the flavors blend really well. When you see, um, when you've caught a fish and you're like coming up with a recipe, are you looking at blending flavors or like, how do you create a recipe with the flavors that you have, especially with snakehead? I find that to be pretty difficult. Well, um, I, let me first just say like, I don't have any like formal culinary experience. I worked in a fine dining restaurant for um, a number of years, but I've never like taken culinary classes or anything. It's just kind of been self-taught and passed down from the people around me, including my parents, which are both great wild game cooks. Um, Don't they, all the best cooks become, that's how they become the best cooks. It's just through experience. Well, here's to hoping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, I really, when I'm kind of trying to d- decide on a recipe for a new species the first thing i'll do is just cook that fish as simply as possible uh, just to get a basis on what kind of flavors that it has what kind of texture does it have so you know if i caught my first snakehead um fillet it cook it in a pan with oil and salt and pepper 
you know, just try to get a sense of what that fish is like and then realize how can you expand that? Um, so snakehead, they, the flesh kind of resembles like a saltwater fish more than it does a freshwater fish yeah. in, in that it's, it's pretty steaky and it's not real mushy and it's going to hold up. So it's a great fish for baking. Um, and one of my most recent flavor on the flies was actually like a Greek baked fish dish with onions and tomatoes and kalmata olives and uh, tomato sauce and just it was a great fish for that because it held up through the baking process you know it's in the oven for like 45 minutes and if you do that with something more delicate it's just going to fall apart and become mush so yeah. i think yeah a great way to kind of hone in a recipe is to just first start out with a blank slate and try to figure out what that fish tastes like without anything else added to it. Has there been a fish that you created or like that you cooked that surprised you like in either a good way or a bad way? I think actually snakehead is a good one to talk about for that. Um, I know you said it was a little difficult for the folks you were around, but um, when I had snakehead, I was pretty blown away at how good it was. Um, Mainly texturally um it was it was a pretty mild flavor but i was like man this is like eating something steaky like a like a swordfish or a cobia or something like in in the texture of it and i was like you know it lives in a swamp with six inches of water sometimes <laughs> so, so it's pretty wild but yeah that, that they're a good fish and i think that there's a little bit at least in my area you know where there's a lot of them in maryland there's an effort from the restaurant industry to try to get people excited about snakehead. Um, a lot of these like <laughs> fine, fine dining, like field to table, locally harvest, like type restaurants, locally sourced, you know, you'll find snakehead on the menu there and it's, it's a pretty penny and people are paying for it. And um, just in my friend group and just the general fishing culture, in Maryland, uh, snakehead are revered as a very good eating fish. So it's been pretty cool to see that happen. That is so cool. Years. How do you catch them? It, they're difficult. Um, and we're still learning really because we don't have like years of historical <laughs> knowledge. Uh, so about 20 years ago, the first snakehead appeared in Maryland in a small pond. And since then they've, they've moved to some surrounding tributaries and uh, river systems and they're pretty much everywhere now that it's relatively fresh and low low current water um, but the way that I fish for them mainly is by using topwater lures um, okay what, yeah when I'm fly fishing for them topwater poppers or something but you have to have it real weedless because they like to be in the thickest, most algae-ridden waters around, uh, real thick grass. So it's it's a challenge. I, I will say I've caught far more on spin tackle than I have fly, but I have caught someone fly. And my one of my goals for this year is to catch like a, you know, like a, a ten pounder on fly. Um, oh my gosh, how cool! Because I mean, I've it's I've never heard of anyone catching a snakehead on the fly, but it's interesting because um, they're part of the bur is it burbot the burbot burbot family um, with the eel pout, right? Know, I don't Are know. they similar? They they do look very much like that, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're in some different family just because the way they behave. I really don't know because they look like eel pout. 
But I think they, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a scientist when it comes to it. But you know, in Brainerd, Minnesota, they have the Eel Pout Festival. And everybody just goes out there and wax a bunch of eel pout. Um, and I don't know. And then they, tr- I think they do eat them. But I was thinking if you guys were trying to get rid of some snakeheads, maybe you have the snakehead festival in Maryland. And I think there's like a competition in Brainerd, like whoever catches the biggest eel pout um, ends up being, a, I think, a lot more, um, more of a party than anything. But also, mm-hmm. I mean, how fun does it say I'm going to an eel pout festival or a snakehead festival? That could be yeah. something you could put together Kirk I'm very convinced you should be doing that <laughs> definitely did you guys is there a dead meat episode about the eel pout oh yeah yeah I think they did it twice yeah. like episode season one and season two and you know I'm always behind the scenes and no I'm never actually I got invited once to go and help produce a show and I was so excited because I'm like look at I'm I'm always behind the scenes right um the host was like hey Lauren you want to come and go paddle fishing and I had such a great time and they caught or they already caught like I think they already caught their paddle fish and so um we were just snagging and it's interesting right paddlefish are the coolest looking I, I'm obsessed with paddlefish but you know just drag like a thing and just snag them and they look like dinosaurs but when we ate them interesting thing they have no bones and so right, they just kind of like cart- yeah, cartilage fish right yeah and so it was they didn't taste like anything I mean I think if you put salt on it or pepper or what it just tasted like the seasoning and also it's um and they've changed the dead meat, but back in seasons one and two, it would be the the guests would cook for them. And so it was people also with no culinary um, backgrounds, but everyone just always wrapped <laughs> things in bacon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone's like, here's, here's a piece of bacon. And so, um, and with that though, like, I think what becomes, what makes you a better chef is when you start taking things without wrapping bacon, right? Like you have to get out of your box. And that's also with fly fishing, right? Like you have to look at your box. If you aren't catching your fly box, if you aren't catching the fish, you have to like change it up, right? Like let's, let's add some streamers or let's add a, you know, a hopper, like what else we can try here. And I think that's with, um, with being a cook, you have to really kind of get outside of your box of like what, what you think would taste good, you know? And that's where I see with flavor on the fly is that you're just trying different things and dishes. I'm like, wow, that looks amazing. I would never think of that. Those would complement each other. Like the relish, like it's so beautiful and it's an artist piece to it, you know? Well, I really appreciate that. Thank you, Lauren. Um, it's been fun to develop that series. Um, and yeah, there's no no sign of it stopping, so there should be plenty of more to come. I'm happy to hear that. How did you how did you get into with um, Fly Lords? Were you just like, hey, I'm gonna write this flavor on the fly piece and let's get this rolling? Essentially, they had an opening, uh, just you know, like a standard job opening um, that they posted for a culinary writer or food writer. I think they called it. And one of my good buddies was already working with Fly Lords a little bit. So he forwarded it to me and he was like, dude, this sounds right up your alley. Check this out. <laughs> and I applied. I think I applied a little late and they had someone else already on online for the gig, but they fell through and then they reached out to me <laughs> um, and they they just said, you know, we, we just want a recipe, a monthly recipe. And 
it sort of it didn't start out as flavor on the fly it was just like you know uh this is how to cook this fish but then <laughs> we rebranded re it a little bit to try to make it an actual series where it's you know it's a little bit of a fishing tale fishing story adventure um yes. followed up with a recipe and i do all of not all of it but i do the majority of the photography for those pieces too so um you know Beautiful. all of the adventures are from from me pretty much solely with the recipe and the photography i i have a few friends that i reach out to for photography as well when i when i'm lacking some photos but uh yeah it's a, it's a pretty grassroots thing and it's been really fun to see it um you know gain some traction and uh just really cool to hear that you're excited about it so yeah it must be must be reaching some folks. Absolutely. What is the process when you're deciding to write um, an article for Flavor on the Fly? Like, do you already have an idea of what you're going to catch, what you're going to cook, the adventure, or how does that, how do you set up that process? I basically just have like a little note sheet that I write down all of the different fishing opportunities in my general area for the course of a year. And then I'm like, how am I going to make this a cool piece, a cool recipe, a cool something? Um, and it gets a little tough, especially in like, you know, January, February, March, uh, those slow months. But I, yeah, basically just try to figure out what Maryland has to offer um, and make something cool based on that. Some of them, some of the recipes, uh, you know, I'm developing for the series. Some of the recipes are things I've been cooking for years and uh, just you know, now I get the chance to share them with a broader audience. Do you ever think you'll ever like make your way outside of Maryland and like try and explore some other places and try and cook some pike or maybe some, some paddlefish? I really hope so. Um, I can't speak too much to it, but there, we have some things in, in the works. Um, and hopefully we can expand this series to not only just print or just you know, like a article, we are hoping to maybe one day get to the point where it can be a video series um, where I can go fish with a couple different guides or, or just, you know, culinary folks who like to cook and like to fish around the country and kind of experience these other fisheries that I would love to get out to and have a chance to connect with. Well, I think everybody's looking at being more sustainable. And I think if we could have that reach other people around you know the country it's like hey these are what my home waters are like what can i do in order to make this dish delish <laughs> um absolutely but, yeah. you know we talk about your home waters and you know i have family um, in uh, boston and swamp scott and um you know the east coast is so beautiful and I have no clue about anything about Kent Island, Maryland. But it, like I said in the very beginning, it sounds like I can already picture in my mind what I think it looks like and smells like. But give me a little bit, a um, little bit more description about your home waters. Okay. Yeah. So Kent Island is a relatively small island. I wish I knew the like square mileage off the top of my head, but I don't. But it's probably around like 10 miles long by like three miles wide at its oh. at its thickest point it's probably three miles wide wow so it's pretty small and the chesapeake bay bridge is kind of a large it's like a landmark that people you know photograph and in our neck of the woods it's a pretty prominent structure 
So it's going to be on a lot of actually, magnets, right? It's going to be like anytime yeah, you go exactly. to the shop, postcards, <laughs> it's going to be on a lot of magnets yeah. and keychains. <laughs> exactly. Magnets, keychains, postcards, it's got all that going for it. <laughs> but it, it goes from the western shore to the eastern shore. And when it lands on the eastern shore, it lands on Ken Island. And then you have to go like another three miles, and then you take another little bridge onto the mainland. Um, but Ken Island is nestled in the upper part of the bay, um, like mid to upper part of the bay. And the Chesapeake Bay is just so special because it has a range of salinity. So, you know, the higher, the more northern portions of the bay have different fish species than, you know, the southern portions of the bay. So in the northern portions, you can catch, especially, you know, the Susquehanna River is the biggest um, tributary of the bay. So if you go up the Susquehanna River, you can catch smallmouth bass, and, um, you know, just Amazing. largemouth bass and, you know, snakehead are up there now, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and then rockfish, which we, striped bass, we locally here in the Chesapeake refer to them as a rockfish. Kind of confusing, but you know, <laughs> they go up there to spawn. And throughout different times of the year, just different fish are in the bay. So around Ken Island, there's a lot of striped bass, a lot of white perch, a lot of croaker, um, more so in previous years, but there's still some around and flounder. Wow. And then you go a little bit more south towards the mouth of the bay and you can catch red drum and cobia and, uh, you know, spade fish, more flounder, mackerel, those kind of things. And we have a really phenomenal cobia um, fishery, which is getting a little bit, it's like blowing up a little bit and I'm a little bit worried for them now because a lot of people are onto it, but it's a really cool thing where you can actually sight fish for them. So you're up in a tower boat, just kind of prowling along and you, you can see them and cast to them and, and they're really hard fighters and really, really good eating fish. Um, I think the thing they do have good going for them is the fact that they grow really fast. So, you know, if management needs to change in the coming years, I feel like it'll be a pretty quick rebound, hopefully. Um, That's good. But yeah, there's just so much diversity in the bay. And then if you follow the tributaries far enough to their headwaters, um, you can even get into some brook trout fishing right here in Maryland. So really runs the gamut um, on the fish diversity and then there's the atlantic ocean which i haven't even spoke about but wow. yeah i mean the atlantic ocean you sea bass um mahi mahi you go out far enough tuna swordfish all kinds of stuff like that oh my gosh and have you caught all of these fish i've not caught um most of the ocean fish um i don't have connections within <laughs> deep, deep sea guys really but all the other ones i mentioned yeah yep well, you know what they say about a boat. If you bought one, they say bring out another thousand is what they call that. So, I mean, you kind of have to have a buddy that has a reliable boat to go deep sea fishing because that'd be the most like, terrifying. Actually, I think I went. Actually, you know what? When I was in Boston, they were like, Lauren, you need to go whale watching. We're going to go whale watching. I was like, yeah, I don't know if I really want to do that. And sure enough, we go whale watching. And I've never experienced that feeling before of being in the middle of the ocean and there's no land at all. I mean, 
it was terrifying and I just got so seasick not because of the waves just because I was like where's the land I don't know I would have been a horrible a horrible captain I'd be a horrible pirate so it's a good thing I'm just back out west but that that, that stuff kind of terrifies me it's yeah it's a huge large expanse and you're just you feel kind of hopeless out there if you don't trust your your captain or your equipment and stuff. Um, and the boat. Pretty much everyone around here, yeah, everyone around here that runs offshore has at least two outboards on their boat. Um, you just for redundancy, you know, just making sure you can get back in. Now, Kirk, if people are wanting to kind of follow on your journeys, especially maybe figuring out what the next flavor on the fly is going to be, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, I'm pretty active on Instagram. Um, my my name on there is at Kirky Marks, uh, K-I-R-K-Y-M-A-R-K-S. That was just a little childhood nickname that my parents and family always called me, but it's Oh, it's, it's a stuck. great so, nickname. Yeah. Uh-huh. So Kirky Marks on Instagram. And then, yeah, and then Flylords. Um, Flylords on Instagram, Flylords website. If you just look at my profile, I forward and share a lot of the flavor on the fly stuff there and i have the little you know link tree website that has all of the recipes that i've done so either way you go about it at my own personal site or the fly lord's site directly um, you can find the flavor on the fly stuff but if you come to my site you can see some personal uh photography too which um i'm pretty passionate about as well Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns, and if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.